Welcome to episode 48 of History of the Marine Corps, Peace with Britain. Our last episode covered the Battle of New Orleans, and we focused on troop movement by the British and the United States. We ended the episode by talking about the peace treaty and some negotiating problems between the two countries. This episode sums up the War of 1812. We discussed the war statistics, and I go over a copious amount of compliments paid to Marines for their actions during the war. We'll go over a few democratic changes in the United States, one of which being voting rights, and conclude with an overview of the next conflict. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. New Orleans was the last major battle in the War of 1812, and arguably the most important. Future President Andrew Jackson led his forces to a decisive victory against the British. The triumph was a significant accomplishment. As we discussed during our last episode, New Orleans was entirely defenseless when Jackson first arrived in the city. To compensate for this weakness, General Jackson called for martial law and posted civilians on the outskirts of the town. The local defending Americans weren't a trained army. They were inexperienced militiamen and civilians, including a few hundred freed slaves and Native Americans from the local Choctaw Nation. Coordination with this army required orders to be given in four different languages, English, Choctaw, Spanish, and French. The entire battle was over in less than 30 minutes, and the British retreated to the Gulf of Mexico. While the invaders were planning their next move, a messenger arrived, and they received confirmation that peace was established between the two countries. The Treaty of Ghent was delivered to the Secretary of State on February 13th. The outcome of this war differs depending on who you ask. Canadians feel that their successful defense against Americans was considered a victory. Most British citizens didn't even know this war was happening. Those who did viewed it as one theater of the Napoleonic War. The United States felt they won because of their success during the Battle of New Orleans, and the peace terms that ended the war were those of the status quo. The reality is that this war was a stalemate. The United States was an underdog during the Battle of New Orleans. Many thought it would be an easy victory for the British. But Andrew Jackson established a defense that repelled the enemy. Although historians give Jackson the well-deserved credit for winning this battle, many fail to mention the Navy and Marine Corps' important role. Marine historian Major Edwin McClellan said it best, quote, all have admitted that Jackson needed time in which to prepare. All have praised the heroic sacrifices of Lieutenant Jones and his comrades. All have emphasized the necessity of the British eliminating the naval force on the lake before they could advance. All have agreed that the flotilla of Jones delayed the enemy. But none have pointed out that the delay it caused the enemy was vital, if not decisive." Unquote. Andrew Jackson did a phenomenal job, but the Navy and Marines' achievements before and during the Battle of New Orleans were a significant cause to the United States' victory. 
Theodore Roosevelt said that the Navy's action against the British squadron in New Orleans may have helped save the city. The conduct by Marines and sailors prevented the British from sailing into New Orleans and helping with the battle. General Jackson included praise to the Marines after the victory. Quote, Before the camp at these memorable lines shall be broken up, the general thinks it's a duty to the brave army which has defended him publicly to notice the conduct of the different corps which compose it. The behavior of the regular troops, consisting of parts of the 7th and 44th regiments of infantry and the Corps of Marines, all commanded by Colonel Ross, has been such to merit his warm approbation, unquote. Commodore Patterson chimed in with his appreciation of Marines during the battle. Quote, My petty officers, seamen, and Marines performed their duty to my entire satisfaction. To Major Daniel Carmick, commanding the Marine Corps on this station, I am indebted for the promptness with which my requisition on him have been complied with and the strong desire he has always manifested to further my views. Unquote. On February 22nd, Congress recognized the Marines and resolved to quote, entertain a high sense of the valor and good conduct of Major Daniel Carmick, of the officers, non-commissioned officers, and Marines under his command in defense of New Orleans. Unquote. General Emery Upton wrote, quote, Marines and sailors at Norfolk, Bladensburg, Baltimore, and New Orleans afforded evidence that to the subordination and courage was due the luster they had won for our name at sea, unquote. One topic we didn't touch too much on during this war was the use of privateers. American privateers' actions were significant during this war, and Marines served on all the larger ships. There were thousands of Marines on privateer ships. Not only did they sail the coast of the United States, but they were in the Indian Ocean and the China Sea, taking British vessels as prizes. They were considered the militia of the sea. Quote, At times, their feats were brilliant to a degree, for unlike the militia of the land, they were trained to the profession of arms, and they followed by choice a pursuit of peril and hazard. Unquote. During the start of the war, the Yankee, a privateer brig, defeated the Royal Bounty. The log states, quote, The officers and marines poured into an enemy a full volley of musketry, and the three divisions at the same time gave her a broadside, unquote. A privateer ship called the America, carrying a detachment of 20 marines, and commanded by Marine Captain John Bailey, helped capture six prizes. Marines served as sharpshooters and were vital to this battle. Flags of the British warships Kane and the Levant and one of the muskets were sent to the Secretary of Navy on May 18, 1815. They were carried by a young Captain Archibald Henderson, who we'll be talking about in future episodes. The flags and the muskets were to be archived in the Navy Department as, quote, evidence of the veracity of the late enemy, unquote. Fifteen years after this event, Archibald Henderson would still have strong emotions about this battle. On April 29, 1830, Archibald Henderson wrote a letter to the Secretary of the Navy. Quote, the service performed by Captain Freeman during the late war with Great Britain gave him a strong claim on his country for some mark of military distinction. Unquote. During a battle between the Hornet and the Penguin, 
the Marines' actions was so efficient that Captain Biddle had to direct them to cease firing on the enemy after only 22 minutes into the fight. Sailors from the Penguin shouted to the Americans that they surrendered, multiple times. When Marines stopped firing, two British Royal Marines took a shot at Biddle, striking him on the chin. The musket ball passed around his neck and exited through his cape. He was wounded badly, but ended up living. The United States Marines on board the Hornet immediately returned fire and killed the British Royal Marines responsible for the shot. Biddle wrote to the Secretary of the Navy, quote, A most pleasing part of duty to acquaint you that the conduct of First Lieutenant Brownlow of the Marines and other officers, seamen, and Marines was in the highest degree creditable to them, unquote. Biddle went on to give his warmest commendation for the Marines' actions and stated, quote, I cannot do justice to their merits, unquote. The National Intelligencer posted about this battle and spoke specifically about the Marines. Quote, In the late action with the Penguin, a private Marine of the Hornet named Michael Smith, who had served under the gallant Captain Porter in the Essex, received a shot through the upper part of the thigh, which fractured the bone and nearly at the same moment had the same thigh broken immediately above the knee by a spanker boom of the Hornet. In this situation, while bleeding upon the deck and unable to rise, he was seen to make exertions to discharge his musket at the enemy on the top gallant forecastle of the Penguin. This, however, the poor fellow was unable to accomplish and was compelled to be carried below. This is what I call true blue. The Yankees, like Gamecocks, will peck to the last, unquote. The list of compliments go on. The takeaway from all these quotes is that the Marine Corps and the Navy should receive more credit for their actions during this war. With the war being over, the United States no longer needed Sackett's Harbor, and a lot of operations and detachments in the Great Lakes were downsized. This included the Marines. In April 1815, Captain Richard Smith left with a large detachment including Marines Captain John Heath and William Strong, First Lieutenants William L. Boyd and Charles R. Broom, 13 sergeants, 12 corporals, and 125 other enlisted. The day after the Secretary of State received the peace treaty, Americans celebrated the news. National pride was at an all-time high, and citizens lit candles to commemorate the war's end. On February 17th, the Senate unanimously ratified the treaty. President Madison addressed the nation and declared the war officially over. But while the country was celebrating, 6,000 American prisoners were still held captive in Dartmoor. Conditions were horrendous. Many came from a prison in Halifax, which was known as Dead Man's Island. 195 prisoners died due to disease and a lack of food and clothing. But like the War of 1812, the United States government was incompetent and couldn't muster the resources to bring these men home. On April 6, 1815, many prisoners complain about the lack of food and the prison's horrible conditions. British Captain Thomas G. Shortland ordered his troops to fire on the complaining prisoners. They killed seven and injured 54. This incident got everyone nervous, and neither country wanted this fiasco to reignite another war. The British organized an inquiry into this massacre, 
and included an American representative to help. The investigation concluded that the men responsible were poorly disciplined, but the overall event was just an accident. The British expressed, quote, sincere regret on this unfortunate affair and of their desire to make every suitable compensation to their families, unquote. Britain arranged transportation for the prisoners. Among the POWs were 1,000 African Americans who were free and fought for the United States. They were captured during the war. But as the rest of the POWs were being sent back to the United States, they refused to be taken to a southern state, for obvious reasons. Coordination took a little longer and they left last. This war changed the minds of Madison and most of the United States. After previous conflicts, like the American Revolution, Quasi-War, or the Tripolitan War, the United States significantly decreased the size of its military. There were conflicting thoughts about a large military. George Washington and John Adams believed that a strong military, combined with a politically united country, would be a deterrent for war. Something to take into consideration as a nation is not currently politically united. Madison and Jefferson disagreed with this viewpoint and advocated for a smaller military during the time of peace. However, the War of 1812 added a few more variables into this, and the mindset of Madison was changed. The president spoke to Congress and asked them not to dismantle the military force created during this war. Quote, Experience has taught us that neither the pacific dispositions of the American people nor the pacific character of their political institutions can altogether exempt them from that strife which appears beyond the ordinary lot of nations to be incident to the actual period of the world, and the same faithful monitor demonstrates that a certain degree of preparation for war is not only indispensable to avert disasters, but also affords the best security for the continuance of peace. The wisdom of Congress will provide for the maintenance of an adequate regular force, for the gradual advancement of the naval establishment, for improving all the means of harbor defense, for adding discipline to the distinguished bravery of the militia, and for cultivating the military art and its essential branches under liberal patronage of the government." Unquote. It seemed like many agreed with President Madison. The Republican Party and the Federalists both decided that a strong navy and army was the way forward. Albert Gallatin stated, quote, The war has laid the foundations of permanent taxes and military establishments, which the Republicans had in the past deemed unfavorable to the happiness and free institutions of the country. Unquote. Congress expanded the army to 10,000. They also authorized an eight-year program to increase the size of the Navy. The program included nine 74-gun battleships, 12 44-gun frigates, three steam batteries, one smaller battleships, two smaller frigates, and two sloops of war were to be built each year. To pay for this new military, Congress established a national bank, and they decided to raise taxes. So what was the damage of this war? During the War of 1812, around 2,260 Americans were battle casualties, 46 of whom were Marines. However, the total amount of Americans who died due to disease and other causes is about 15,000. 
The number of Americans wounded was 4,505, and 66 of those were Marines. On the other side, Britain had 1,160 battle casualties, with 3,321 deaths caused by disease, and 3,679 wounded. The United States spent $93 million on this war, $80 million of which was borrowed by the federal government. During episode 43, Scorched Earth, we spoke about Britain's blockading strategy. All trade and travel to main ports south of Rhode Island, which included the Mississippi River, were stopped. New England faced similar restrictions, but they would only apply to naval vessels, not merchant ships. Commercial ships could still go in and out of port. The reason for this change was due to the American Federalist Party. They were anti-war, and blocking commercial traffic to a heavily populated Federalist region would more than likely change their views. Prohibiting warships from using the ports in New England, but allowing commercial vessels in and out of harbors, was a way for the British to stop naval warships while appeasing the Federalist sympathizers in the area. There was a clear financial impact to this tactic. The value of imports allowed to enter Virginia in 1814, during the blockade, totaled about $4,000. During the same year, the value of imports into Massachusetts was $1.6 million, a significant difference. The War of 1812 took place during the Industrial Revolution. And even though newer technology didn't play a significant role during some of these battles, it will in the future. Steamships became popular towards the end of the war, and major powers would build steamships for future conflicts. Machines with interchangeable parts started to become popular as well, but mostly in the civilian sector. As technology advanced, the military would begin using this new technology as well. In 2007, the National Park Service researched the preservation of Revolutionary War and War of 1812 sites within the United States. They drafted a report and gave it to Congress. In that report, they stated that out of 677 areas identified as the most significant moments of those two wars, about half had been lost to us. After the War of 1812, many of the militiamen who fought during the war demanded the right to vote. Back in early America, there were restrictions on who can vote. We mostly hear about restrictions on African Americans and women, but that restriction applied to specific religious groups as well, depending on their location. This included Quakers, Baptists, and even Catholics. There were also limitations based on property qualifications. For example, if you wanted to vote in Georgia, you had to own 50 acres of land. If you wanted to vote in New Hampshire, your private property had to be worth 50 pounds or more. In Maryland, the requirement was both 50 acres of land and 40 pounds worth of personal property. Militiamen got their wish, and the increase of eligible voters led to a few changes during this time. One of those changes impacted the Federalist Party. After the war, the party lost support and started to dwindle. 1816 would be the last year they offered up a presidential candidate. Back in episode 40, the end of the first Barbary War, we covered the treaty between the U.S., Tunis, and Algiers. 
Tobias Lear negotiated a horrendous treaty, and U.S. citizens accused the country of selling out to Tripoli. The treaty called for paying tribute to the Barbary pirates, and in return, they wouldn't attack U.S. merchant ships. It was a substantial sum, and accounted for 20% of the United States' budget. The peace treaty with Tripoli would go down in U.S. history as one of the most unpopular treaties ever. However, it did stop Barbary pirates from attacking U.S. merchant ships and taking American prisoners. After Madison declared war on Great Britain in 1812, things changed. Algiers sided with Britain, and the treaty with the United States no longer mattered. Britain gave Algiers the heads up to start attacking U.S. ships again. Quote, the Prince Regent in the name of his father, George III, expresses the strongest friendship for the day, assures the day that he will protect his capital with his fleets so long as a present friendship shall subsist between the two nations, declares that the British fleets are masters of every sea and are the terror of all maritime states that whoever attempts to oppose them will be subdued, begs the day not to permit those who are enemies of Great Britain to lessen the harmony now subsisting between the two nations, and that he will not hearken to the evil sayings." Unquote. This letter was given to the United States, specifically Consul Lear. This letter also provided the day of Algiers the motivation to resume attacks on the United States. Algiers was one of the most dominant and threatening pirates in the area, and the United States took a substantial hit to trade in the Mediterranean. Now the tables have turned, and Algiers no longer had Britain as an ally. Immediately after the Treaty of Ghent was ratified, Madison went to Congress, and he asked for war against Algiers. Congress agreed, and in February, declared war against the pirates. The United States put together a squadron for the task and assigned Commodore Decatur to command this fleet temporarily. The unit consisted of the frigates Guerriere, Constellation, and the Macedonia, two sloops of war, the Ontario and the Epervier, and four schooners, the Spark, Spitfire, Torch, and Flambeau. Right behind Decatur was another fleet commanded by Commodore Bainbridge. Once they arrived at their target, Decatur would head back to the United States and Bainbridge would take command and destroy the pirates. The plan kicked off on May 20, 1815, with Decatur and his fleet sailing towards the Mediterranean. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we head back to the Mediterranean and cover the Second Barbary War. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, Please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.